Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Now, we've talked a lot about the issue of rents and mortgages and Canadians' ability to pay for both or either. And then there was this story, which I saw a few days ago, and I thought, I really need to follow up on this. Because it takes the issue of unaffordable rent into an entirely different zone. Think about it. Two-bedroom apartment, two bathrooms in Toronto. Two sisters have lived in the apartment for a number of years. They're paying $2,500 a month. Now, in ordinary times, that would be a lot of money for a two-bedroom apartment, even in Toronto. But it isn't now. But when you then receive notification, and I believe it was through an envelope or a piece of paper, which was slid under their door, that your rent is going up by, hang on to your seatbelt, $7,000 per month, effective November the 1st. How do you respond? Because your rent now will go November the 1st from $2,500 to $9,500 per month. Remember, that's after-tax money. So you've got to earn about, uh, what is it, close to twenty grand in order to be able to get that $9,500 after-tax. Yomna and Kadeja Farouk are the sisters who are confronting this reality because it's ongoing. Yomna Kadeja, thank you so much for coming on the air. Let me ask you, first of all, how are you? Thank you, Roy, first of all. Um, I'd say we're, you know, doing okay, all things considered. We're kind of just hanging on by the edge of our seats because as the story unfolds, there there are layers and layers upon it. And as you said, it goes back to the bigger issue of affordability and, you know, rent control. Yeah, share with us, share with our listeners across the country, please, how this developed, how you became aware, how you were informed I can't even say it, that your rent is going up, up by an additional $7,000. How did this go? How did this occur? Right. So originally, the increase was going to be, quote unquote, a little bit more modest. So it was going to go up by 1000 And that was because we wanted to switch from yearly to month by month. All things considered, you know, understand that the landlord has their side to it. But we did communicate that that wasn't being done with the proper legal protocol. So, you know, you have to give the proper form, you have to give proper notice. And so that's what we had communicated. And then after that, that's when we actually received the slip. It was slid under our door and that that didn't have the 3500 that had the $9,500 increase. So initially it was going to go to 3500 and you challenged yeah. that. Uh, the way it was delivered, the way it was communicated to you. And then you receive the news that, okay, you want to play that game here? It's going up another $7,000 a month. How did you react to that? I mean, how do you react to that? That is a great question. I Obviously, there's no perfect way, but this was something that, you know, we were always concerned about because we don't, we live in a post-2018 building. So, I mean, we don't have that rent cap. And we we had, you know, talked about it together. We were always worried that this was a possibility, but we never could have imagined that there would have been just such a drastic increase. And I personally, when I first saw that notice, 
I left because I thought this can't be real. It was so outrageous. And at the same time, I was, I mean, my head was just spinning because I was like, what is happening? What's going to happen next? I mean, is this, I mean, technically it's legal, but there's got to be something mm-hmm. we can do about it. So, so what is not okay. What, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, this, this isn't okay. I mean, and everyone has echoed that. Well, add me, add me to the chorus. It's not okay. I mean, I can't imagine a seven thousand dollar increase. But so, so you've 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 pursued this. What have you done, and what's the result been? Yeah, I mean, our the biggest action that we're taking is really advocating a petition for rent control because this does display and tap into a larger issue with affordability in in the city. And you know, we live in a neighborhood where we see every week a new um, proposal for a a building that is structurally sound where people are living, that it's going to get knocked down and turned into a condo and it's displacing a lot of people. And so, you know, the way we've responded to this is we, we have to affect change at some larger level. Is there anything in a regulatory sense that you've been able to employ to engage in order, in, in your favor, in order to challenge this decision by your landlord? We, yeah. Are there rules, are there regulations in place which will make it difficult for the landlord to follow through with this? Or is because there's no rent control on this building, is the landlord perfectly free to do what he or she has done? Yes. And unfortunately, that's the issue. There are no loopholes really for us to get around that at least we're aware of. Um, That's just the reality is that legally the landlord can do this. You uh, you get along okay with the people in your building. You've been there for a number of years. Um, you're stable. You're employed. You're not troublemakers. And uh, they just wanted, well, not just, but they wanted an extra $1,000. And because you objected to that, I, I guess you became the, the, the objective, the, the objective lesson for anybody else who might challenge an increase, right? Yes. And technically, we didn't, it's not so much that we challenged the increase, it's that we'd communicated that there is a proper legal protocol to this. Right. So we, you know, the way we would put it is we exercise our rights because we had the right to request monthly, a monthly rent agreement. We, you know, had the right to request proper legal protocol and that he used proper legal forms in all of these agreements. So the landlord eventually did do that, did did use proper legal um, documentation to inform you of the rent increase? Yes. What are you going to do? That's a great question, you know, and one that we're actively working through every day, really. You know, we're constantly sifting through our options. Um, We're not quite sure. There's a lot up in the air for us. We have thankfully had a community of people just reaching out to us, you know, asking if there's anything that they can do. And we're actively leaning into that community and seeing, you know, what we can do and and how we can really make something positive out of this. It's not easy to find another apartment, I would think, and not at, uh, no, not at $2,500, right? Am, am, I, am I right or wrong about that? You're absolutely right, Roy. 
So I think we are tampering our expectations and increasing our budget when it comes to that. But the rental market is just so crazy currently because of our story. A realtor did reach out to us and he's been helping us find a place. But one thing that we're now prioritizing is finding a rent controlled building because, you know, I mean, while we're continuing to really push for rent control for all buildings, you know, as it stands, there is that divide. And so we want to make sure that we're protected. But those are so hard to come by because people are holding on to them for fear that, you know, something like this may happen to them. I'm not the world's greatest mathematician, so I did the numbers in my head and then I verified them on my phone on the uh, calculator. You're facing an $84,000 annual increase in rent. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and that's more than a lot of people's salaries. Yeah, an entire family. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel let down by individual levels of government, uh, you know, the uh, local, municipal, provincial, even federal government? We've got the prime minister talking about dropping the GST as far as, uh, you know, construction of new rental facilities is concerned. Do you feel let down by the by the people who have the responsibility to manage our, 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 our society, our, our politicians? Yeah, you know, Roy, you know, while we acknowledge there are many laws that protect tenants in Ontario, and we at least have some of them in our favor, we are let down. Of course, we are let down by the lack of protection in a situation like this, because with such a drastic increase, it's really almost just predatory um, and shifts the power to, um, you know, the landlord in the situation. Have you communicated with the landlord since that... uh rent increase was demanded with legal papers? Well, we've of course given, we gave notice. Uh, We gave our 60 day notice because we just know the situation is hostile and we fear what can come next. And it's unfortunate that we have to fear, you know, living in in our own place and and having to move out. But um, we honestly, it's, it's been a bit of radio silence since then. You sound like wonderful young people. If I owned an, an apartment building, you're exactly the kind of young people I'd want as tenants. And Thank I wouldn't you. be trying to make your life difficult. I'd be just glad I had you. Yeah, <laughs> we appreciate you saying that. And, you know, we're not, this is not first time renting out a place. We've had a couple of tenants previously and have had great um, landlords. landlords. Yeah. And we've had great experiences with them. But unfortunately, the luck of the draw wasn't so favorable for us this time. Yeah. I, I wish I could fix this for you, but I, I thank you for sharing your story. At least uh, more people know about it now across the country, and maybe these the landlord will will say, you know, I don't want to go through life being reminded of what I did to the Farouk sisters. I don't want to do that. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Good, good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for helping to amplify our story and to bring the issue to light. I've wanted to talk to this guest for quite some time. I'm glad I can. Let me preface it by saying that teachers across this country, Canada, are experiencing violence and harassment from students. The elementary, got it? Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, those are the little kids, report 70% of ETFO members, those would be the teachers, have personally experienced or witnessed violence against staff members. We're talking about little kids. 
So let's talk to Britain's strictest headmistress about how students must behave in her school or face the consequences. Also, how at her inner-city London school, the emphasis is on the three R's. Imagine that. The approach is yielding great success, although not without its critics. Catherine Burble-Singh is the headmistress of the Michaela Community School in Wembley, London, in the UK, of course. And she spent some years of her youth in the Toronto area attending school. So, the strictest headmistress, I don't think you and I would have gotten along very well. Oh, no. No. We would definitely have got along because I would have made you behave. I know you would. I mean, people say this to me all the time, oh, I would have got chucked out of your school. But um, they don't realize that they would have been different people in a different environment at school. So, people imagine that strict means Kids are sort of allowed to do what they like and the bad kids just get punished all the time. But you see, the bad kids change in an environment that has high expectations of you. Mm -hmm. Um, All children change for the better in that kind of place. I mean, I think people imagine that I'm super strict, so I'm marching up and down the corridors with whips and chains. That's not the case. In fact, I'm barely, I'm in my office most of the time, meeting with teachers and having various meetings. I mean... What it is, what strict is, is a consistent approach across the whole school with all of the teachers, where behavior systems are so aligned and the expectations of the children are so aligned that the children simply don't misbehave in the first place. So, I mean, look, it's hard to believe, but all of your listeners are welcome to visit us. We get 800 visitors every year. And I have to say from across the world, there have been many Canadians who come to see us. Um, and they're always a bit kind of shocked. They say, how is it that the children are all putting their hands up to answer questions? How is it that they're not all fidgeting and they're not looking around? And, and how is it the guests come into the room and they're not distracted? It's because children will reach the standards that you set for them. So you should just set them really high. It's just that most people... Their standards are far too low for children, and so children don't really make much of an effort. Yeah, we would have gotten along just fine, you and I. (laughs) We would. And you would have been really pleased with yourself. So that's what I'd say. When our kids talk to the guests, the guests always say to me that what the kids say is the first two or three months, it's hard. They have to get used to it. They, they, you know, the idea of detentions and you have to learn how to sit still and to, to track the teacher. We talk about tracking the teacher and to concentrate. Sometimes I see children, especially any that, that join us uh, mid-year from another school. They might even be in tears saying that um, they've never had to concentrate so hard, never had to learn so much in their lives. But eventually they adapt and then... They see the difference between themselves and their friends at other schools. And they see that their friends at other schools are disorganized, are late, are, are look like a mess, don't know very much, um, are unable to think in, in, in interesting ideas about the world because their brains are not filled with knowledge in the way that our kids are. So, you know, like our kids then feel really lucky and think, oh, thank goodness I'm at Michaela because I'm learning so much and I'm a much better version of myself here than I was elsewhere before I came here. Preparation and, for life. Preparation for it, life, isn't it? Exactly. So it's not just the, you know, when things start unraveling, and I have to say, 
in Canada, I mean, I, you know, I, I was there until the age of 15. You know, my parents are still there. I go to Toronto twice a year. My sister and her family are there. My best friend from the age of six, um, we were in grade one together. Uh, she and I, you know, are constantly in touch. And um, this is all in Toronto. And her sister is a teacher, actually. And um, honestly, I, I think Canada is in a worse position than we are in the UK. So let me I just think- ask you this then. Let me, let me get you to respond to this. What's your reaction to the news of Canadian Teachers Federations declaring large numbers of teachers, talking about little kids now, right? Elementary. Large numbers of teachers, 77% have been subjected to violence and harassment by their students. How how do you react to that? What I just said, things are worse for you. Uh, I mean, we get some of that here, but most of it is at high school level. if you've got that happening at elementary level, you have your schools are on fire. And the thing is, is that your government and your your your, your edu- the world of education in Canada doesn't recognize any of this. And um, Canada is very woke, you know. So when I go to Toronto and I and I turn on the radio, I have to turn it off because it's just so horrifying. I just can't bear listening to it. Um, and so. All of these woke ideas. So woke isn't just, I mean, it includes, but it isn't just, you know, uh, putting black boxes up on Instagram and being supportive of BLM and all of the more modern stuff around LGBTQ and so on. I'm not, it, it is that, but it's also what it's been for the last several decades, which is allowing children to lead the learning in the classroom and to lead the culture in your school. And People didn't think it was a big deal in the 80s and the 90s when they allowed that to happen. So instead of desks, so desks in our school are in rows. And um, the the teacher at the front of the class is leading the learning and is in charge, is the authority in the classroom. Whereas uh, for, for decades now, it's been the case in many schools that the desks are in groups And the children are looking at each other. And that is what's called child-centered learning. And it's the children who lead the learning and the teacher who moves amongst the desks as a facilitator of learning, just trying to keep the kids on task. (laughs) Now, it was that move towards children leading things that has now created this is we've just we're at the other end now where there is total chaos in the schools, where there's violence against teachers. There's also obviously violence amongst the, the, the pupils, the um. The, the teachers are not in authority anymore. There's no more respect for them. And I would argue that it's the same thing in families, that parents are trying to be friends with their kids instead of leading them and holding them to account. We teachers and parents should be holding the line. When children say, I want to just, you know, play video games or I want to be on my phone. First of all, you shouldn't give your kid a phone. I mean, Bill Gates didn't give his children data until they were 16. But Steve Jobs, when interviewed in 2010 about the iPad and asked about his children using the iPad, he said, of course, I'm not giving my children the iPad. That would be insane. And um, the guys, the big fat cats in California are making billions off of our stupidity. They, they protect their own children from this technology. They send them to the most traditional school in um, Silicon Valley where they're using pen and paper and so on. Meanwhile, we all are sending our children to schools with iPads to move from classroom to classroom, giving them phones. The children are totally uh, no longer connected with reality. They sit at break time and at lunchtime on their phones like zombies. They're not playing. They're not interacting. They're not being socialized. Now, all of this is happening. Meanwhile, the children are then leading everything. They are totally influenced by social media. So it's like a combination of 
of the the so-called modernity of of you know of tech and all of that combined with us just having relaxed our our jobs as adults so you know, the thing is we should be in charge we are the ones who owe these children it is our duty to be in charge and to lead the way and but people th- think of it as mean you know if you type into google uh, who is the strictest teacher in the world my name comes up and of course people think that means i'm mean it doesn't mean i'm mean it means i love children it means i love them enough to do what's right by them and unfortunately there are too many adults both teachers and parents who won't do what's right by children they would rather take the easy road out and just be friends with the kids because in that moment it's quite hard to give the detention it's quite hard to say to your child no sit down and read a book instead of just playing on your video games it's hard to hold the line and so we take the easy way out and in the end we let children down i want to give you a standing ovation of one <laughs> yeah well and that's why your children your teachers are being beaten up I mean, and people then say, oh, my goodness, it must be a mental health crisis. It must be special needs. It's none of that. It's the fact that we have lost control as adults and we are the ones who are at fault here. And then, well, the mental health crisis is real. But the, the reality is that these children are being made mentally ill by all of their their time on social media. I, I would suggest all of your listeners Take your, if you've given your child a phone, so if you haven't given your child a phone, hooray, you're a great parent. If you have given your child a smartphone, I would suggest you take the phone without telling them at the end of an evening and take a look at how much time they've spent on that phone that day. Look at their screen time, right? Look at how much time because you're going to be shocked, okay? And, um, and then without them knowing, go on the history and look at the websites that they're going on. Mm-hmm. You know, find me the 14-year-old boy who has a phone and has unsupervised access to the internet, and you will find me a boy who regularly goes on porn. It is, in, you know, it used to be the case that the pornography was just in magazines and it was at the top shelf behind some wooden barrier or whatever in the 1980s. Nowadays, it's not just magazines. The children have direct access to pornography in video form on their phones and parents don't think to themselves, gosh, actually, I wouldn't want them to have You know, to- you know what you're just telling me is, is, is fascinating and I, I don't, I won't, I can't dispute it. I don't want to dispute it. But it reminds me of a conversation I had a number of years ago about bullying. And a principal of a school in Canada was very concerned about bullying. And he said, Roy, it's not the traditional bullying where it took place in school and then when the the student went home, they were safe from the bullies. Now they have phones. Now they have access to social media. And they can bully all day, all night long. And then we wonder why there is a mental health crisis. And then you're, and you're, so this is what you're telling me is an extension of what I heard that day. Now, what are the parents of your students? Because you're not living in a, you're not, your school isn't a very um, uh, um, uh, wealthy area of London, right? Yeah. So how, <laughs> no, how, it's in the inner city. So all those films that you see, you know, about inner city schools with all the, the troubles that inner city kids have, right. that's our you know, uh, kids who might get, you know, murdered down the road by some gang, uh, kids who might join a gang, kids who are involved in criminal activity, uh, knife carrying and all of that. That, that is the sort of thing. That so that's what they're exposed to outside the school. Yes. But when they're in the school, 
Um, and plus, you know, we're very keen on obviously trying to help them when they're outside the school. So we right. get, get them on the buses right away to go home straight away after school. All of my staff are outside at the end of the day, making sure the children are safe because they are in genuine danger, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, it's the case that we say to all the families joining. So our high school starts in grade seven and then goes all the way through till they go off to university, etc. And um we, I say to the parents, do not give your child a smartphone. And I'd say about half the parents listen to me and do not give their children a smartphone. And that it's unbelievable how I can anecdotally, I can tell you right now, those phones break your child's brain. They will not do as well in their exams because of that phone. And secondly, it opens them up to not just to pornography, but to real danger. Uh, the kinds of pet predators that are out there who will know where your child lives, know their route to school, know their friends. They know exactly how to groom them. And there are all sorts of mothers out there right now campaigning whose children have been murdered because they gave them unsupervised access to the Internet and they didn't know any better. So I'm not blaming your listeners. I get it. It's a new technology. We don't know. But that's why I'm just shouting and shouting about this so that people can hear me. Anecdotally, I can tell you, I can see the difference. So we have a top set, second set, third set, fourth set that are that are streamed according to ability. So the brightest are in the top, the, you know, the not so bright at the bottom. I see the kids who move sets. There are some kids who move from the fourth set up to the top set and the other way down, round, top set going down to the bottom set. I can tell you for every child without, a, without exception who moves sets like that, the kids without smartphones are moving up and the kids with smartphones are moving down. Now, I see it. It's just obvious to me that the children who have smartphones are not learning as much. They're not as bright. And they, they, they may start off as bright. They start off in grade seven as being at the top, and then they slowly go down because they have got access to that smartphone. Uh, Ms. Burbelsing, let me just uh, read you a couple of uh, texts I received. Uh, howdy, Roy. She rocks. This is, <laughs> this is Daryl in... Uh, in New Brunswick from Calgary. I'll stand up with you, Roy. I think I just fell in love. Oh. And, and let's see what else we have here. From uh, Alberta, another one. Roy, I love this lady. And on and on it goes. You've really well, connected with our listeners, and I knew you would. Lots of ordinary people who would prefer the education system to do what I'm saying. You asked about whether or not there are people changing. So yeah. there are. There, we get 800 visitors a year from across the world. Right. So ordinary teachers, some head, head teachers, principals who come and they change things in their schools. And then they write me letters to say, thank you so much. We've made, we're copying you in this way and that way. And our schools are better off for it. And what are they copying? Well, they're being more traditional. So the teacher is standing at the front and leading the learning. Their behavior, they just tighten up on behavior. They teach the kids gratitude and kindness and a sense of duty towards other people. When you get a detention, you don't just let yourself down, you let the whole class down. You know, all of those small C conservative ideas uh, will change the culture in your school for the better. And I, I find people come and, and, and do that and they change things. Now, when it comes to more of the establishment, however, that's a different matter. So we have tried to expand. That hasn't necessarily worked. I've, I've, I've come across a lot of stumbling blocks when trying to spread things through a more official channel. But underground, via teachers who just come and visit and on social media and on programs like yours, just trying to spread the word. 
and make makes a real difference. People, ordinary people think, oh my goodness, I'm not crazy. Teachers from around the world write to me and say, thank goodness somebody's saying something. So things are changing, but but very, very slowly. And it's such a shame. It's because the, the educational establishment is just very left-leaning. And yep. so they find my small C conservative values offensive I, in themselves. I have to jump in. I hate to do this, but uh, we have run out of time. I do hope you'll come back on the program, though. Yes. Well, thank you very much please, for having me. Please, please. I'm glad to be speaking again with Adrian Sutherland. I think Adrian and I have become kind of friends over the last few years. He's been a guest on this program on a number of occasions. We've talked about his music a lot, and he's a really, really highly respected, very successful singer-songwriter. He's also a lifelong resident of Atahuapiscat. And uh, the community of Atahuapiscat, First Nation community, has been in the news a lot over the years because of the distress that they've had to deal with. Uh, homes that are in no way, no way ready to deal with a, with a northern winter. Drinking water that is, frankly, dangerous to drink. It's, a, it's a, an issue that replays itself in northern First Nations communities on a daily basis. Um, and... Let me switch back to the music for a second. Adrian has uh, has released uh, a brand new, well, it's, it's a single, but there's a new CD coming out as well. Maybe out already. And uh, the single is uh, called Notawe, which is father in Cree. And uh, that was, or is, Adrian's first language. How are you, Adrian? I'm good, thank you. Good to be back, Roy. Yeah, it's been a long time. Well, it's not been that long, but it's been a while since we talked. I missed you a couple of weeks ago in Hamilton. I'm sorry about that. But we, yeah, we will cool. meet. We will meet. Yes. Let me start. Before we talk about music, and I want to play for our listeners a little bit of Notawe, but let me ask you first, what does National Truth and Reconciliation Day mean to you personally? Oh, I think it, uh, it means, a, a, you know, a number of things. Uh, first and foremost, um for me i in my own family i choose to go out onto the land and reconnect um with my culture this is how i choose to spend uh my time on this day every year and uh but it also means it's it's a time for for all canadians you know to be able to set aside some time to learn um and you know uh, have these spaces for them to come together and 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 learn from from each other about the the history um of the the residential school legacy um as you know it's been a very very tough um um few years with the with with the truth uh coming to light about the uh discovered graves so a lot of things uh, have been happening and 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 uh for a lot of people it's been very difficult and, and shocking at times to know these things that uh have gone on in our country you travel a lot uh, internationally you travel a lot inside Canada. You meet a lot of people, First Nations and not First Nations. Do you notice, has there been a significant change? Has there been an uptick in understanding, a noticeable uptick in understanding about First Nations, Indigenous issues in in Canada among Canadians who are not First Nations? I definitely notice for sure that there's been uh, a lot more conversation. Um, I've uh, been a part of some of those conversations in my travels, 
I have had people uh, who are aware of First Nation issues and challenges in this country, probably more so than ever, I would say, you know, if I had to go back in the last 20 years and I, I just remember, I, I remember trying to have these conversations and people were very close-minded about First Nations uh, um, issues in this country. Um, so definitely there is a difference. I think people are beginning to um, have an open mind about these things and have are taking taking the time to to understand and learn about these things um, um, uh, you know alongside uh, uh, First Nations people. It's really good to know. It's really important to know that people are doing that. Uh, and sort of in general society, I'm sometimes not quite sure what to call it, but let's say general society. What about uh, in your community of Ottawapiskat? Lots of issues, lots of challenges. You've spoken with us in the past about what the community faces, particularly as we're now headed into the colder weather. How are things in your community? What is most necessary? And uh, and are your are your most pressing needs being addressed? I think uh, you know fall time is a is a is a uh, an important time for a lot of First Nations people, particularly in in remote areas. Uh, this is the time where you know people are getting ready for harvesting. Um, they want to go out and get moose, caribou, uh, fish, and all sorts of things uh, that they're going to need for the winter months. Uh, they're collecting firewood to heat their homes. Um, I, I think uh, you know so it's a very busy time for for our community. Um, I know uh, in terms of our, our needs being met, um, I, I, it's difficult, you know, to, to respond to that question. I know with the water issues that we've been having here for, for a very long time, I, I don't know what has really changed other than the dispensaries that were, uh, that were, um, put in, uh, the community during the water crisis we had uh, mm-hmm. a few years back, um, you know, healthcare is, is, is the same. I think uh, we, you know, it, it's all transient, you know, these, these types of relationships that we have with healthcare professional professionals, teachers, and, and other professionals that come in and service the area, they're all just transient relationships and people don't want to invest in those kind of relationships. So that's tough on the community as well, I think, in terms of having any continuity of uh, health care. Um, uh, so those, those are some of the challenges, I guess, that, that, that I continue to face uh, along, along with my family uh, up here in the north. And, and the price of things, you know, are extremely high. Uh, that's a challenge for a lot of families. I have no clue how some families are able to get by um, on so little um, you know, the, 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 uh, the allowance that people have here, they, they, like the wages that they make uh, are so uh, next to minimum. And I just don't know how, you know, they're able to get by with, uh, for so many years on, on, uh, on the very little wages that they, uh, that they make. Yeah. Inflation would be tremendously difficult, uh, so far in, in the North. So, uh, Adrian, give us a bit of a, a little bit of history, a little background on, uh, Natale. Absolutely. Uh, it, was, it was a song um, that sort of came uh, at the 11th hour uh, for this the, the new album I recorded this summer. And I know a lot of people, like I'm at that age in my life now where, you, you know, uh, where you just start to lose people that um, that you care about, especially our, our elderly and our older people, the older people in our lives. 
And a lot of the uh, people that I know and a lot of the men in my community and some of the women have lost, you know, their fathers and parents and stuff like that. So I thought it would be nice to to write about that experience um, from my own perspective, I guess, uh, having lost my father, um, you know, many years ago. And I thought it would, you know, be be something nice um, to to do for for those ones. Yeah, and uh, and and it's entirely in Cree in the Cree language. Yeah, you know, it it is, and it kind of for me, in in some ways, it takes a little bit of uh, a pressure off me um, not having to write in English. But at the same time, writing a Cree was actually not that much easier. Um, I I uh, I found it very awkward um to sing in in my in my language believe it or not i'm a fluent cree speaker but singing in cree felt really uh awkward you know um but uh i i'm starting to really feel feel much better about singing in my language and feeling a lot more confident and more comfortable uh i just think it had a lot to do with the sounds and the syllables were a lot more harsher um they didn't quite come out the way i wanted them to but i'm starting to you know fall into a little bit better well, truthfully, um, when I first heard it, I really liked, and I knew it was in Cree because I'd seen the news release, but I really liked it. And uh, and the more I listened, the more I liked it. And I listened to it three times, and I want you to know it's on my uh, playlist in my car. Awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> let's have a listen uh, to a little bit of Adrian Sutherland's Natawe, Father. Adrian Sutherland and Natawe, Father, AdrianSutherlandMusic.com. It, it has a, you know, it has a great sound, a great ring. What are you hearing from, from your community about it? Well, a lot of people have come by and uh, uh, we have a small uh, coffee shop here. So I see people, you know, every morning come to grab their coffee. And, and when we released the song, everybody um, had come in and had heard the song uh, we were really pleased and they were saying that it was such a beautiful song um, and they couldn't stop listening to it. And, and the people, of course, that have had experienced uh, uh, the loss of their parents or, or their father more specifically said that, you know, it, it brought them to tears. And, and uh, just the the song itself and the message behind uh, the song, how, you know, no matter, no matter how hard life gets like we have to find a way to just get up and keep going and and uh to live our lives as best we can oh true uh colin linden and greg colby that's quite a combination yeah and 
it's amazing uh, working with Colin and um, you know some of the other players that came into the studio and played on this record are just um, um, phenomenal players and even better people, uh, just amazing human beings. You still uh, with Midnight, Midnight Shine? Pardon me? Are you still playing with Midnight Shine? Well, I haven't done a show with Midnight Shine since 2019. Um, uh, that was the last show we did, uh, uh, I believe it was in Ottawa and, uh, then, then the, you know, COVID happened, um, and we haven't done a show since, um, so we're a bit, we're on a hiatus. Um, you know, I've told the rest of the gang that, uh, you know, I'm going to focus on some solo projects and, uh, and, uh, come back and circle around, I hope someday, uh, and, uh, you know, if everyone's still on board and willing to 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 make another record, that's what we were hoping that uh, hoping to do anyway. Well, your uh, your, your success is uh, is really just growing exponentially. You've won major awards in this country and outside the country, and and now singing in uh, both Cree and and in English. And uh, I, you know, I, I I've told you before, a lot of your music is on my uh, playlist in my in my car. And now I'm trying to learn Notawe phonetically. I have no idea what I'm singing, but I give it a try. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, been playing uh, some duo shows, and I uh, did a first my first trio show uh, in back in, in Hamilton actually a few weeks back. And uh, the 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 guy I usually play with, Matt, uh, he learned some of the harmonies. So I was I was <laughs> I was surprised because uh, the language is hard to learn. Um, and uh but he was he you know he he showed up and he said he learned all the harmonies for the for the uh the chorus of the song and i was like man that's uh that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah that is tell us a little bit about the new cd yeah so we have a couple of singles a couple of more singles that are going to be released in october uh, i'm really excited about those two uh next singles that are going to be coming out and uh the record's going to be released in the new year um we're going to have uh couple more singles uh prior to the, the big release so this for me is like um i i i think for me this is something i um really wanted to put everything behind like everything that po- i could possibly do to make this record what it is um i you know i i wanted to draw on my culture i wanted to draw on my language like what made me unique what makes me unique as an artist, I think, and what sets me apart from other artists. I really tried to to play that up on this album uh, and draw on some of those things that I haven't really done in the past. And I, I just, I just, for me, it's important to like put everything I got into this album to make it the best album po- I could possibly uh, can can make it. Uh, and I know we've we've we're able to achieve that. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful album. I can't wait to share the story. Some of the stories are about where I come from. Um, you know, we have two Cree songs on there, and we have this amazing, uh, 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 just an amazing uh, cinematic uh, album, I guess is how I would describe it. AdrianSutherlandMusic.com. AdrianSutherlandMusic.com. Adrian is from Adirapiscot. Adrian, thank you for the time. Great to talk to you again. All the very best with the song and with the career. And important that we had an opportunity to speak on National Truth and Reconciliation Day. We're going to play a little more of your song as we uh, go out to the bottom of the hour. Thanks again for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Roy. Good talking to you. Yeah, take care. Adrian Sutherland. Have a listen. I know I'm taking my life into my own hands by interrupting Taylor Swift, but I got to do it. It's a talk show. It's not where I used to do years ago when I was a rock jock and we said, while the others are talking, we're rocking, but it's the other way around. Let's get at the key issue here, the meat of the matter. We're going to talk music. We were going to do that last weekend, but the wildfires were so significant that we, um, we completely changed our programming. And Eric Alper, thatericalper.com, 16-time Juno Award winner, nominated six times as Publicist of the Year during Canadian Music Week and has one of the absolutely best Twitter sites. At that Eric Alper has kindly come, decided to come on the program this weekend. How are you, Eric? I'm good. How are you? That well, was such a good intro. I should have you do my publicity. Hey, listen, I'll do whatever you want. That's what I do, man. No, I, I just, I just, I value you, and I've just really become a fan of your social media presence. And I don't want you to be retrained, okay? No retraining of Eric Alper. Uh, it's great stuff, really great stuff. So, before we get into some of the other meat of the matter that I want to talk to you about, and 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 I sent you an email on this about what what is it that, that creates the I don't know the sound, the dynamic, the presence. What is it? Uh, publicity it will play a large part, a major part, as you well know, in the creation of an artist or a band that just keeps on going, that keeps on turning out, churning out hit after hit after hit, year after year, decade after decade, versus an artist who, you know, they're successful, but they kind of plod along. They have a hit here and a hit there and a song here that kind of wanders up the charts a bit and then falls back off. And then there's the one-hit wonders. They arrive, and they play. I mean, they got a song everybody really gets into, and they say, oh, I can't wait for the next one. And the next one comes, and everybody goes, Pfft. right? Um, and then comes I, the I next one, and nobody, nobody yeah, listens to it. Having the lead singer not sleep with the drummer's wife is probably a really good way Who are you talking to about? have a band extended. But, you, you know, <laughs> uh, let me put you this way. Have you ever watched a really great movie? And then at the end of the credits, you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And you're like, what do these people do? I do. Yeah, absolutely. Any one of them could have messed up the movie. And when you look at the music industry, it's, it's almost works in the same way. So many hundreds of people working in the music industry, from the manager to the booking agent to the, the, the radio pluggers, to, to the publicist, they all have to be working together all at the same time with the same goal. And the artist has to be up for it. The absolute sheer laser-focused determination and ego to survive in the music industry is unparalleled. When you take a look at the top 20 highest-grossing artists of all time in terms of tour dates, you've got Elton John, U2, Guns N' Roses, 
more U2, the police, um, and artists like that tend to be, Roger Waters is on this list, artists that tend to be over 60. And so you think, well, you know, what makes them so great? And artists that have a one-hit wonder, like Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners or Soft Spell's Tainted Love. And I think it would really come down to not just the musical excellence, but I think it's the adaptability. I think when you look at Elton John, there are so many different styles and different um, uh, different kind of flavors of Elton John. Do you like the singer-songwriter stuff of the 70s? Do you like the pop stuff of the 80s? Do you like it when, you know, he got back to a little bit of basics in the 90s? Or somebody like you too, who goes from um, straight-ahead rock band, who's angry, who's fueled by the music of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, and then 10 years later end up with Octung Baby completely alienating their core base audience, but finds a whole new one in the fly in mysterious ways and becomes a little bit more EDM. So I think the ability to, to move with the time certainly has to help. David Bowie is a perfect example of that too. What is it that's created such an endearing um, and caring and uh, uh, incredibly positive response for Taylor Swift? What is it about her and her music or is it beyond that? I think her songs are great. I mean, there's they're just no denying that even from the very beginning of her career when she was 12 years old and, and writing lyrics on MySpace, she was able to connect with total strangers who were going through exactly the same things that she was going through. And now that she's 30, she's able to write different kind of songs going from pop to country and back to pop. Um, She's got a hugely engaged fan base, as we all know, and taking a look at how many people did not get so far tickets to Taylor Swift. Her business side is astonishing. You know, the fact that she understands the music business side of the industry is absolutely crucial to not going bankrupt and to not doing the things that you would need to do. She also embraced technology really, really well, as you know, when the, um, you know, the high profile time when she lost her catalog to a venture capitalist company who outbid her, she went ahead and re-recorded all of the, uh, you know, so far five of the six of her last album that she doesn't own in order to own them. She could not maybe have done that 20, 25 years ago when you had to get a big studio and it was just impossible to do. So she's done everything that you need to do so correctly that I think 50 years from now, we're still going to be marveling at how was she able to achieve all of this. Yeah, she's 30, eh? Yeah. Who was it who said, don't trust anybody over the age of 30? I think we all did back in the hippies. <laughs> yeah, but Mick Jagger, wasn't it Jagger? Wasn't it Jagger? Huh? Yeah. It was Jagger, wasn't it? Mick Jagger, yeah. Well, it, well, I mean, Mick Jagger also said that he's not going to be singing I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the time he's 30. Well, have a, hold on, hold on. Have a listen. So as the song would end, I would come on and say, now sports and weather together. Oh man, that's Eric. Eric, it's still a great song. Oh yeah, and and the fact that Mick Jagger has not had a problem with having satisfaction since he was thirteen years old, it gives you everything that you need to know about making these artists get up on stage and yeah. singing songs in their eighties. In their eighties. Their eighty. In their eighties. And, and and what was it? He'll still outdance you. He'll still outsing you. He'll still outright you. 
And, uh, you know, apparently the, the thought is that he runs the length of eight football fields every show. No, I, I know that. And he, yeah. he's, he's a marathon runner. Yeah. I used to play a little bit. And then uh, I saw, walked out on the uh, football field at uh, McMaster University a number of years ago. And I, I just looked, uh, looked down the field and I thought, damn, that's a long way. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just one time. So how many times does he do it? Yeah. And you still have to catch the ball. And oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's the other part that was a problem. That's the other part that was a problem. Yeah. I could have been. In the white room with black curtains near the station. Eric Alper, at that Derek Alper. Tell us about this one, Eric. Well, I mean, you know, that would be the sound of, of creep. And, uh, you know, that's the band that Eric Clapton decided to go a little bit, a little bit, uh, rock and, uh, grow his hair out and take a lot of drugs. And, uh, there you go. Then you end up with white room. Oh, it was just amazing. Uh, ginger. So Baker. Good. Who was the third? Is it, there was ginger Baker. Who was the third one? Uh, Jack Bruce was the bass. Yeah, of the band. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Bruce. Yep, and I, then uh, uh, later on, they were doing really, really well. They had a lot of hits like that one, and then uh, then they saw the band, the band, yeah, um, in, in concert, right. and said, um, we need to just split Cream up. I mean, this was just so devastating to him, because he thought that they that Eric Clapton had lost the plot when it came to rock music. And he took a look at Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm and the guys in the band and said, that's what I need to do. I need that's to get amazing. back to the basics of music, of rock music, of blues, of roots music. And he did. And he ended up slowing things down a little bit, yeah. uh, turning down the volume and kind of created, you know, 25 years worth of music. Yeah. And, and totally based on seeing them. There's seldom a day goes by that I don't listen to, uh, Eric Clapton now. I probably would have come off that uh, cream song, White Room, with blue skies and green lights to you and yours. Yeah. Remember those little phrases in rock radio in the, in the day? <laughs> blue skies and green lights to you and yours. Uh, let's talk to Randy, who's in Calgary. How are you, Randy? Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. What's your question? Well, I drive truck and I'm, pardon me, I'm just sitting here at the warehouse. And I've got a load uh, later tonight. But anyway, talking about old songs, uh, speaking of Eric Clapton, you never <clears throat> you never hear Lay Down Sally anymore. <laughs> well, it's a talk show, so we're, I just grabbed the big one from way back when. I, you know, yeah, no, that was a fantastic song. Yeah. But anyway, uh, speaking of one-hit wonders, there's yeah. a couple, three or four. That give us one. Just give us one. Okay. Uh, how about uh, I Wonder What You're Doing Tonight by the Foreman Young Band. Okay, hold on. Eric, what about that? <laughs> wonder what you're doing tonight. I love that one. Um, the, the the ability, you know what, the, the ability for people to just throw throw these songs out there. Where, uh, uh, give me give me some context. Tell me tell me the first time that you remember hearing that song. Well, I've got a I've got a huge selection. I'm from Grand Prairie, Alberta, initially, but I've got a huge selection of 45s. And I love my turntable. So when's the first time you heard the Randy? When's the first time you heard that song? Uh, I heard it from, uh, you know, I don't recall. It's been so long ago. I think it was 1978. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there was that Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart one 
um, that they did their the original one of that, and then I think there was a couple of other. I think Gary Lewis did a cover of that as well. Yeah. Uh, but and that's then also there a was, great song. Was... It's amazing what songs survive classic right. rock. Guys, I want you. I, I want you both. I want you both, please, Randy and Eric. Here's a one hit, one hit wonder. Everybody thought this group was going to go on to great things. They didn't. But here's the song that really, well, they crushed it with this one. How do you know? I mean, how do you, how can, how can you write that song and not follow up with a massive, a massive hit? Yeah, you know, when it came to the knack, they had the songs okay. after that. The problem was is yep. that when that first album came out, the album cover looked pretty similar to the Beatles meet the Beatles. And the critics thought that they were just riding off of a record label concept of let's create another British invasion, even though that these guys are Americans. So magazines like Rolling Stone and Cream and Circus back in the 70s absolutely lambasted this band. It's like their version of Nickelback. Let's put that really make it. Okay, Randy, one sentence real quick. Okay. Uh, they had Baby Talks Dirty, which was just as bigger, bigger. Baby Talks Dirty? You know, my baby talks dirty. Nah, I don't know. Well, sing it. Go and ahead. That? Go ahead. Sing. Yeah. Go ahead, Randy. I sing. Think about that one. But, but, I think it, it, it's. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's. You guys are really. And, and then there was. There. There Randy, Randy's, Randy's got, Randy's oh, got a list right, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my sweetie loves a great, <laughs> an extra big beating. Well, that's why. Oh, you gosh. know, I mean, if, if you kind of treat was, women like then that, there was. and all of a sudden you may not get the radio play after okay, a couple you, months. Yes, we're talking about the Stones earlier. Do you remember what you're talking about? What you're talking about by the Blushing Bride? Uh, you know, <laughs> see that band when I was first oh, getting into the clubs when I was nineteen, thinking yeah. that this is if these guys are this good, the Rolling Stones when I have a chance to see them are going to be ten times better. Right, Randy, I appreciate it. Randy, Randy, gotta go. They Randy, just like the Stones, and then there's then there's Randy. Randy. I gotta go. <laughs> Randy, email me. Randy. I gotta go. Uh, no, you can, Randy. You can email Eric. Where? What's the What's the email address, Eric? Uh, you, you know what? Just find find me on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. Yeah, go to go to Twitter or Facebook I, I, and find I, I, Eric Alpin. I don't Alpin. know how to do any of that stuff. I drive truck. I'm okay. pacing the neck down. Okay, buddy. Uh, thank you so Thanks much for, for calling. calling you. Absolute delight. Just wonderful. So are you. I always appreciate these segments, and I appreciate... I'm sorry to our other callers. Should have gone to calls earlier, but... Uh, I think you and I can talk about this stuff for hours. And, oh, yeah. And, and fortunately for the audience, we oh, can't. Yeah. Do you know what? You know what I remember? <laughs> I remember in the, the very first time I did radio, so rock radio, <clears throat> if we made a mistake on the air, we got fined five bucks. <gasps> that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. That can buy you a home back then. Well, yeah, by the end of the week, I had no <laughs> money left. I'd earned nothing. It all stayed with the station. At that, Eric Alper. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for having me, Roy. We'll talk Always to you. a great pleasure. Thank you, Eric Alper. Joe Warmington has been a friend of mine for... Many years. Post Media, Toronto Sound columnist, one of the best journalists in my humble opinion. We've worked on some cases together and, and been very successful at getting situations resolved, like bringing an 18-year-old Canadian out of Cuba where he was being kidnapped by the communist government, quite literally. And we put so much pressure on Ottawa, on the Harper government, they, uh, they had to work. They had to get off their behinds and work to get this young man back into Canada, and they did. 
Joe, it's a story I'll, I will never forget. And to me, that is it, – it leads me to what we're going to be talking about. It's when – it's how media can do and does do an excellent job when we're – when we get something between our teeth and decide we're going to do it. How are you? Well, doing great. It's great to be with you. And, Noah, it's uh, interesting that you recall that case and, of course, the, all the interpreters that we were involved with. Yeah, you know, not only bringing in, but we were dealing with them and helping them while they were fighting for their lives in in great peril. You know, and uh, and you're right. In each case, um, the governments did come through. Uh, different governments, Harper and Trudeau, and we worked on things uh, with Cretchen and Martin and with Mulroney before that, sort of dating ourselves. But but you you, you know, I remember the the woman that was in Mexico. Um, as well, being on your show about that, um, and she was stuck down there. And so, uh, yeah, uh, politicians and governments respond to heat. And uh, the only way you, you got to put it right on, you know, right on their backside at all times. And, you know, obviously, uh, it's almost like a mini campaign, isn't it? Like an election campaign. Once you get what you want, um, you know, you get the person saved. They want a little bit of a pat in the back. You give them that, and then you get on to the next thing um, to try to help and use these, you know, these positions that we are blessed to have. That's obviously a lot of work to keep these jobs and, and, and that kind of thing. And it's a tough environment to do it. It's you know, it's like a high wire act. But uh, if you don't use it, you know, you can't just be promoting Bruce Springsteen's concert tour. You, you know, it's got to be more than that. And you know, we we certainly, and I. That's why I respect you so much and what you do, because you take on the tough issues every week. And really, I I get the sense from you. I know, I say this with great respect. You almost come at it where it's like it's your last show. Um, and if if you step on that landmine, so be it. And uh, I think that's what makes you great. No, thank you, Joe. And that's really the way I approach things. If if what I say is going to cost me, um my job or it's going to cost me um no if it's going to cost me so be it there are things that need to be said there are positions that need to be taken there are people who need to be protected there are people who be need to be held responsible and that ultimately at the end of the day oh god i hate cliches uh that is that is our that is our responsibility in media and i've I've argued. I've argued with people. I've, I've I've discussed with people. I've laughed with people. Probably even cried over a couple of beers with people about what media's responsibility is, what our role is in society, what our job is in society. And that's what I want to talk to you about because we've got C eighteen. We've got a, most Canadians probably have mm. only sort of surveillance um, information on what that's about. Uh, we have media under tremendous stress, and I, uh, I'm pointing yeah. the finger at Meta and uh, Google. They're bandits, in my view. Um, it's not a view that's shared by everybody. And, and I stand with our Canadian media, say, if you're going to use our product, pay for it. But, and, but Canadians can, you know, you can go to, your, go to the news website. You don't need Meta. You don't need Google. They've, you got the, the websites. Anyway, Joe, um, let me ask you. How do you approach a story when you when you when you get an idea for a story and you have such a unique way of reporting and writing? I've, I've never, I've literally never read an account from you that I did not enjoy reading, and it sounds like a mutual admiration society here. 
but I haven't read a story from you that has not made me feel like, gee, I'm glad I read that. How do you well, do it? it? Well, it's easy to say that. I know you don't always agree with, with uh, what I write. No, I don't. And, and I don't always agree with your position on the show, but I feel I'm like shocked. And I think that that's the standard that we have got to keep and we've got to bring to everyone else. The No offense to this, you know, a couple of older guys talking about, you know, whatever the younger reporters are, a lot of them are on independent media, but they, their feelings get hurt awfully easily. And, you know, they want to cancel people and, and, and block them and destroy them and, and talk about them. Of course, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have a drag it out battle uh, on some issues. You're obviously going to agree on some issues, but you still respect each other a lot after. In fact, sometimes you even listen and change your mind. I think back to, you know, uh, I'm going to answer your question about, you know, how, how we approach these things. But, you know, I, I, I'm always humbled about the, the times that I think I got it wrong or, you know, sort of on the wrong side. I didn't have the full picture. And I think back to the Iraq war and how Jean Chrétien didn't, we didn't go into that conflict with the U S at the time I was really upset about that. Uh, and, and articulated that wrote that even went to Washington to talk about that in retrospect. I don't feel, think that feel that way now. Um, and I don't think many people do. Turns out that Chrétien made the right decision there. And, you know, that's important to mention now because we're in this kind of, uh, you know, mind frame now again, with obviously with the with the situation with Ukraine and Russia, so it's something that I'm mindful of in everything I approach. I think I learned from that. I've learned from Afghanistan as well because I saw, you know, and I was obviously when uh, you know they pulled out of there, left all those people that we cared so much about mm-hmm. to fend for themselves. We got a few out people that we knew. They were lucky, uh, you know. Obviously, they were lucky to get out of there. Many didn't get out of there, and so I. I have a very dubious approach towards war and conflict now. I just don't look at it the same way. And I'm no expert about war. I've been to those conflicts. I've been to Ukraine. I've been to Afghanistan. Uh, and so I have some sense of it. Um, and I'm mistrustful of, of all this all-in, all agendas now. I'd rather sit down and hammer it out the, the way that Reagan and uh, Tip O'Neill did, you know, in the days of the American during the Cold War um, and, and Margaret Thatcher and and the like. And then, of course, they didn't always agree either, but they all liked each other. At the end, they'd go for a drink, and that's what I believe has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that's the way it used to be in, in Ottawa and Washington. They would uh, battle each other fiercely during the day. And the night, they'd, you, they, you know, they'd go for a drink or go for dinner. You know, just to answer your question, I didn't really answer it, but the process is interesting because there's different things. Obviously, there are floating stories and you know, you cover stories that are happening, whether it's that horrible murder in Le- uh, Leslieville. And, you know, I mean, on those things, you try to get human angles to them. Mm-hmm. You don't just get the stats or the police report, but you get out there and talk to, the, you know, the, the widower or whatever, all these kinds of things to sort of bring a full perspective. But it's interesting today, you know, this is, I was just thinking about this. And I was thinking of you right away. My son and I went to Bellevue House in Kingston. We're down in Kingston Way on our summer vacation. And Bellevue House was where Sir Johnny McDonald lived. And that's a national historic site. And, you know, obviously we're excited to go in there. And, of course, it's just about six blocks from where they tore the statue down a couple of years ago. And I'm still smarting from that. And I was there. My dad is in his 80s. And we watched them stuff this, uh, you know, this beautiful bronze statue, a huge thing, so heavy, into a storage shed here in Kingston. And 
the feisty old Scott didn't want to go in. It took them two hours to push him in there. And, and that statue had been up 125 years. I mean, it was just ridiculous. But I went in there today with my son, and the Parks Canada people were in there. And everything they said about Sir Johnny McDonald was negative. Everything. From that he was a drunk, the bottle, he married his first cousin, he bribed his way to the, you know, the, uh, the prime ministership. He was responsible for killing Louis Riel, obviously the residential schools. Went on and on and on. So you're sitting there as a columnist, and you don't just get the explosion, but your lights go on. You know, like you think, wow, wow, I'm on holidays now, but I'll probably do a column on that. Uh, from Alberta, Josie Roy, it's like that old hockey adage, coaches are hired to be fired. Radio hosts and journalists, same thing as what you do while you've got the job that matters. Love you, man. Thank you so much. And you're right. It's what you do while you've got the job that matters. What do you expect from media? We're going to go to your calls. We have a few minutes left. Actually, very few minutes left. Joe, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but you were talking about uh, well, the Sir John A. Macdonald yeah, statue. Yeah, that's why I tweeted out, uh, and I tweeted at you, uh, Roy, just to show you the picture of Bellevue. And the reason I mentioned it is that it, it occurred to me that, it, you know, obviously this is, it's out there for everyone to see, but mm-hmm. that there's been a orchestrated effort to sort of tear down Sir Johnny McDonald, taken off the, you know, the, the dollar bill, the schools have been changed, yeah. the highway, the statues, and then you go over to the house that he lived in, a historic, national historic site, and they talk about how horrible he was. And I think that that is a core that it comes down to journalists where, there's a narrative that comes from government, and if you don't follow, we saw that with the, the pandemic and the vaccines, and you see it with wars, as I referenced earlier. And I think what I was trying to say was that you've got to stand still and step back and say, what exactly are you telling me? And is it accurate? And is it something that you just want to parrot? Or do you want to challenge it? You know, the, the left uh, does a really good job of that. They call it the fact-checking. And I think that that is important to fact check, but it's also important to not to be sure that you're not in some sort of a, you know, what's that, you know, kind of like a tunnel into this thing where if you say one thing that's not part of the narrative, Echo chamber. you're out. And, uh, and I think that's the number one thing, more mm-hmm. than meta and all that stuff that we've got to really be careful of. You've got to have independent souls that are prepared to, you know, maybe they even may get it wrong sometimes, but... They're not afraid of, of the system. And I think that's you know, and, and this is this is what you and I have done for so many years. I mean, I've gotten it wrong. But then I just I, I apologize. And I just say, you know, give them the best shot. I did research as much as I could. And uh, you know, if you get it right far more frequently than you get it wrong, then you've really accomplished something because it's communication with your with if your you audience. If you don't want an outcome, you're usually in trouble. Yeah, you're not so, in trouble. If you, if you don't want an outcome, like you're not trying to push something. The minute you want something to be, and you say, "Look, you're you're not worthy because you have that point of view," as opposed to saying, "Let me listen to that point of view." Yeah, express it though, right? They have to express it, and not just express. The, uh, the the speech that was prepared for them. I do have to get, I said I'd get callers on the air. Uh, Greg in London. Greg, what, what do you want from media? Well, uh, I like some of the old school uh, journalism. I want honesty, integrity. I want people to be knowledgeable on both sides of the issue and the, and the, and the, and the narrative. I, I, I want, uh, and like you just, your guest just nailed it, not afraid to stand up against the people who are trying to push you to say things. 
sometimes when I listen to radio shows now, it's almost as if the program manager or whoever comes in with a sheet of paper and says, so just about every station, this is what you're going to read today. I hope you don't, I hope you don't get that impression from this program. No, like I said to your screener, and this is the honest to God truth, Roy, the only shows, radio shows that I now listen to is your show and one local one that sometimes it's iffy, okay? Over the years, I used to listen to a lot of radio shows where you could mm-hmm. phone up, you could voice your opinion mm-hmm. and not get hung up on mm-hmm. or not get marked that they don't take your calls okay. anymore because that's happened to me. Yeah. I have. I am down to one, really. Greg, one I, Greg, I, Greg, I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I'm going to hang up on you, but only because I'm out of time. But thank you. Thank you so much for your call. He's right, though. Well, you know, he is right. But the thing is, I listen to all kinds of radio, different kinds of bands on stories. You want to be challenged when you're listening to it. If you're just hearing what you want to hear, that's not good either. And so, you know, that's the, the, the whole challenge of it is to, yeah. to listen and, and, you know, obviously. Oh, boy. Point of view. Joe, I, you know, time just gets the better of us. And I got to thank you for, for joining me today. And I want to do this again. And I have an idea. I'm going to run it by you. And hopefully we can do it soon. All the best. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the air. You're just, uh, you know, you just sound great. And, thank you, Joe. Uh, you know, everybody's saying that to me, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. The odds are, I've said how many times have I said this now, that many of you listening to this program, and thank you for doing that, most of you perhaps have, like me, seen Top Gun, and you've seen Maverick. And I love both of the movies. Can I tell you? When the first one came out, it was great for its day. I watched it again uh, after seeing Maverick, and that was a little dated. But uh, Maverick, to me, was just uh, was a lot of fun. It was an escape. It was fun. It was Tom Cruise. It's what I wanted to see. So we're going to talk to my great friend, Murray Pomerantz, independent scholar and adjunct professor in the Department of Media and Communications at RMIT University, Melbourne. His most recent book, just out in paperback, is Color It True, Impressions of Cinema. So I'm going to add this as an editorial comment, Murray. You're one of the most respected authors of books about film and the actors and directors in the industry. And uh, and film critics, you're just the most knowledgeable person when it comes to film in the world, period. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> you are. I don't think so. But, hey, Top Gun, the, 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 the franchise, $1.85 billion. <laughs> It's okay. insane. Okay. But listen to me. That's nothing. That's nothing. The Mission Impossible movies, there are five of them. As of this minute, Roy, $2.25 billion at this minute and climbing because the new one has just been open for one weekend. <laughs> so, so, you know, whatever we think about Tom Cruise, and, you know, there are a lot of people who think a lot of different things and many of those different things all at the same time. This guy's good money. Like, if you put him in a movie, you're going to make money. And those who only want to do that, he's not what I'd call an artistic film star. But if you're just trying to make money, he's a good investment. 
And wasn't he responsible for delaying Maverick? And yeah, and it turned he held he held it held he it was, back. He was bouncing back and forth with the COVID and with so many other things. And even now, you know, I don't know if you heard the most recent news. I haven't heard today's news, but with the actor strike, he's a little bit worried about one of the opening venues for the new Mission Impossible and whether it would be opening there. So, you know, I mean his his ability to bring in money is very much tied to what goes on in the industry. Yeah, well, you know, he's an interesting I, I, let, character. He starts out. <clears throat> I don't know. The early movies make like twenty, thirty mil, right? And they're pretty silly little ventures until nineteen eighty three, when he comes on with risky business, where he shows himself as a kind of grinning, brash, gutsy teenage boy, mm-hmm. uh, a figure that I guess in North America we just love to love, the Apollo figure. And uh, he gets the attention somewhere between 1983 and 10 years later of a woman named Paula Wagner, who in 1996 produces the first Mission Impossible. And then he joins her and they become a producing team. She's responsible for the kind of breakout Tom Cruise. Okay, so I I can tell you're not you're not a big fan, Um, but I am. I, I, I. I'm, fa- I'm a fan of, well, let me put it this way. I'm a fan of certain movies of his, not all of them. Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder I loved. The Firm I loved. Mission Impossible, I'm probably the only guy, one of the few. I haven't even watched one of them all the way through, and I'm going to. Um, well, they're actually pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to watch them. And he does his own yeah, stunts, yeah. right? I mean, that's well known. He does his own stunts. You know, the movie he made with Jack Nicholson is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Are you He's kidding really me? Rain Man? I was just saying to our technical yes. producer, yes. you have all, to see Rain Man. And we always forget Rain Man, don't we, when we're talking about, you know, Brash Tom Cruise. He's very good in Rain Man. Yes, he is. Few and Good Men I, wasn't too bad either. Yeah. True. <laughs> Come on, Murray. Can you imagine that he's working with Dustin Hoffman with that kind of chemistry in Rain Man, and it's really clicking? It was really beautiful. Yeah, it was well done. It was really, really well done. What did you think of Jerry Maguire? Eh, but that's just... <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's, you know, that's the subject matter for me wasn't a big turn on um, okay. as much as the performances. So, you know, they're all competent. Hey, Roy, these guys are all competent. Believe me, they know what they're doing in yeah. front of the camera, so you're not going to get much of a bad performance. When you and I talked on the phone the other day, you, you hit the nail on the head. Tom Cruise's career was built on that smile. Yeah, I think Nobody so. has a smile like that. No, I don't think they do. Many have tried. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's like you could say Arnold's career was built on his biceps. Because whatever else, that's finally what shows in every movie. Uh, there's a snarky little line, but it's the biceps. How would you compare Tom Cruise to Clint Eastwood? Huh. Oh, God, that is so difficult because, you see, Clint Eastwood has aged and matured like a good scotch. Yeah, he has. You know, and his most recent films are very provocative and profound. Mm-hmm. So I think you mean the younger Clint Eastwood. And I mean this, Murray, and my friend Cynthia is going to cringe. I know what you're thinking. 
Has he fired six shots or only five? Well, I got to tell you, in all the excitement, I plumb forgot. But seeing this, this is a Magnum 44, the most powerful handgun in the world, and it'll blow your head clean off. You got to ask yourself, do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? That yeah. I don't know why I remember that. Except Dirty Harry to me, Dirty Harry to me was a transition time in my life. Oh, oh, oh. bingo! What do you Absolutely. mean, don't go? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was I was yeah. at that time in my life where I was transitioning from a teenager into an adult. Well, you want to know about Eastwood. You have two things going there, and he, he flashes the two of them together. One of them is stature. It's the way he stands, yep. or if he's on a horse, the way he rides. Yep. Fantastic to watch him ride. Yep. Um, and it's the voice. It's the, the voice. Very, That's what I remember. More than the, the scene, I remember the voice. Absolutely. The very quiet voice saying very loud things. He never yells. No, he never does. Just before that scene, there's a bank robbery that's taking place, and he's standing in a diner. He's eating a hot dog, and the hot dog isn't finished being chewed yet, and he hears the gunfire, and he just looks outside, and he says very quietly, One word, the S word. <laughs> Because he'd really rather finish the hot dog. He'd really rather finish the hot dog. Yeah, and yeah, he, 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 walks, of... he walks out of the diner, pulls this monster Magnum 44 out of his holster. He's great. He's great. Uh, oh, yeah, he's great. He's absolutely wonderful. And, and let me, I'm sorry, I don't mean to dominate this conversation, and it's no, not no. mine to dominate. But I will tell you, Clint Eastwood is, has always been my number one favorite actor. And my favorite movie of all time, Clint Eastwood's, was the outlaw Josie Wales. And it was his relationship with Chief Dan George that oh, made yeah. that movie so special. Right. And he looked at Dan George with a deep look, and he drank that look because he became that, you see. That's the Clint Eastwood of the old, of the more recent films. Yeah. The turning point is the film called Blood Work. If you haven't seen it, you I have to see it. I haven't seen it. Okay. So he's an old cop who's had a heart transplant, which means he better not run too fast. <laughs> And we see all kinds of stuff having to do with his physicality. Like he's in a he's in a in a surgery room having a medical exam with Angeli Angelica Houston playing the doctor. It's incredibly tender. You just don't get this from Clint Eastwood. Hey, you asked me, I think, to think about who I think are the younger actors to watch. Shoving in the overdrive I went 
Come on, tell me the truth now. You're moving or you're singing or you're doing both. I can see you. I know everything everybody's doing. Well, sometimes. I think I do. Murray, I like it. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> See, here's the thing with Denzel. Yeah, De- yeah, Denzel yeah. Look. Okay, we, we won't talk uh, about Tom Cruise anymore then, okay. Well, no, we'll bounce back to Tom. We can bounce around Tom Cruise. Let me, just, let, me just, let me just say this. Hold on. Murray Pomerantz is an independent scholar and adjunct professor in the Department of Media and Communications at RMIT University in Melbourne. His most recent book out in paperback is Color It True, Impressions of Cinema. Murray writes the best Books on film. Okay, go on. Oh, thank you so much, Roy. It's true. I don't know if that's true, but it's true. I, I it's, love true. It. it's true. Um, you know, Denzel plays the color card. He's a talented actor. He's got good delivery. He can move. But if he were not black, I don't think we'd be watching those characters. Really? Whereas I wouldn't say that wow. about other people. See, for me, the guy to watch is Idris Elba. Who's that? So Idris Elba, I believe, was born in London. He's bigger than Denzel. I'd say he's probably two or three inches taller and a little heftier. He's very, he's very athletic looking, like a fullback. He's got enormous range. I mean, this guy can do Shakespeare. He can do a mafia movie. He can do anything. So Idris Elba, E-L-B-A. A lot of your audience know about this guy already. He's worth keeping an eye on. Um, for women, there's a woman named Viola Davis, who I have to tell you, uh, she just really blows me away. She's got it. She's got style. She's got class. She's got a voice. And she's got attitude. She's got an amazing way of modulating attitude. So I would, you know, I would, I would look to her. You're going to see that develop even more. I think she's already won a lot of awards, but I think we're going to see that grow. Andrew Garfield is an interesting young actor, uh, another British fellow. But I gotta—it's hilarious. The first films I saw of Andrew Garfield, I could have sworn he was born in Los Angeles, and it was only much, much later that I learned that he's actually English. No, no kidding. He well, I, I don't look. You don't care about my actors. I don't much care about yours. <laughs> <laughs> no. So here's the thing with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is 61 years old, right? Is he really? Yes, he is 61. Oh my! 61. And he's God. he's running around, jogging through his movies, hanging off airplanes, doing his own Good stuff, for bragging him. about it. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. But don't you wonder. When he gets closer to our age, will he still be doing this? I sure hope so. Yeah, well, well I, hope, I do. I really hope so. I mean, I, I think it'd be lovely. I, I just, I just, I just like the guy. I just, I just like. Well, let's move it this way. I like certain movies of his, yeah. and I like them a lot. Clint Eastwood, though, always be number one for me. Another movie that I really liked from Clint Eastwood was Pale Rider. Okay, what about well, the strike? What's well, going on? I was going to say to you. I was going to say to you. We're looking for Tom Cruise to keep growing and developing. And we would say the same thing about all these other actors. But you know what this strike is really all about 
is whether that's going to be possible for them. Because the main issue for the actors is studios and producers having legal right over their image as digitally manipulable. Not just a photograph that can be put into a newspaper, but a digital file that can be modulated and changed. Example, In short, do we need Tom Cruise once we have this information? Example. Well, can you make a movie, instead of using actors, using digital oh, forms that have you. been worked up into characterization? Oh, and if, if it's an action movie that's already supposed to look like a cartoon, and this mm -hmm. even looks more like a cartoon, will mm -hmm. any of the younger people in the audience complain, or will they still pay their money? So the actors have a lot to lose here. And it's mm -hmm. the same kind of thing that everybody in the whole world is worried about losing in terms of the computer economy taking over the world. Because once right. you have computers, uh, actual workers can be dispensed with. In, artificial in, intelligence. In, in, artificial intelligence, artificial labor, you know, robotics, yeah, yeah, the whole yeah, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, who's doing what? So I've seen stuff recently showing how some of the shots were made in some of these action movies. And they're made with an extraordinarily elaborate camera mount, dolly, uh, crane, and um, how can I describe it? A choreographed movement system. So that actually the camera can flip upside down and go absolutely all over the place on a computer program with nobody there operating it. <laughs> so in short, whatever happened to the cinematographer and to his assistant? The so, so, so you and I could star in an action movie. Yes, I think we, we may be starring in one any day now. <laughs> You're laughing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm laughing. Yeah, they always to... laugh first. Yeah, I know, I know. You I know. know, I know. Um, Murray, yeah. Murray, I, I, yeah. tell me about tell me a little bit about your book, Color It True Impressions of Cinema. Oh, you know, um, <laughs> I was I was asked to write a book that I wanted to write, so I'm crazy about color. So this book has 14 chapters, and each chapter is a different color. And in each chapter, there's somewhere around 10 or 12 little um, meditations on film usages of that color. Wonderful. Well, okay then, yeah, uh, be because we'll have to talk another time, and we will. I so much hope we will. Uh, yeah, we will, and more, more frequently. I've always enjoyed our conversations. We've been Me talking too. for 20-odd well, years now, 30 years maybe. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, look for the action film coming to a theater near you, starring Murray Pomerantz, co-starring me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.